Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 316th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting this week across the world from our studio in Hollywood, California. After having spent three weeks in Spain giving presentations, working on a couple of initial coin offerings, and actually managing a week's holiday in Nurka on the Mediterranean in Spain with my wonderful long-term friends Brian and Norell. Thanks, guys. We had a fantastic break. And I hope you listeners enjoyed the three shows that we did from Spain. We've got great news to begin the show today. So feel free to pour that second, third, even fourth cup of coffee in the morning. Higher consumption of coffee is connected to a lower risk of death, says a report from the European Society of Cardiology Congress, which is good news because by my days of pretty steady ritual, I get up at sort of 7.30 and I jump in my spa and have a couple of cups of coffee before I start the day. So this is all good news for me. Now, the study featured nearly 20,000 participants and it followed them for an average of 10 years. The study found participants who drank at least four cups of coffee a day had a 64% lower risk of death than those who never or almost never drank coffee. The research also found for participants who were 45 or older, drinking two cups of additional coffee a day was linked to a 30% lower risk of death. Now, that's all good. And these findings back up a pair of studies published earlier this year touting the benefits of drinking coffee. One of the studies found coffee was linked to a lower risk of death due to heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, and kidney disease. All good. I'm going to live till I'm a 1,000. I don't know whether you've heard, but Bill Gates is funding a smart city in Arizona, not far from where our studios are. Gates just purchased 25,000 acres of land in Arizona, not far out of Phoenix, to begin construction on a new smart city, which is called Belmont. He's invested $80 million into the 25,000-acre space, and when it's complete, it will contain 80,000 residential units and a population of around 182,000 people. One would suspect that they're mostly going to be nerds. So I think I'll instantly apply for the Coca-Cola and Crisps franchise. I reckon they'll go through the roof. Now, the property's just 45 minutes outside Phoenix, which is already the fastest growing city in the US with a growth of over a thousand people a week. So just on that basis alone, it looks like Bill's had another fantastic investment. Now the smart city will be designed to feature high speed networks, data centers, autonomous cars and vehicles, new manufacturing technologies, congestion minimizing traffic lights and automated logistics hubs comparable in size and projected population to Tempe, Belmont will transform a raw blank slate into a purpose-built city built around a flexible 
infrastructure model sounds fantastic. I mean, the concept of smart cities is something that's really gaining pace over the last few years. Um, you might recall that last month, Alphabet Sidewalk Labs struck a deal to turn an area of Toronto in Canada into an internet city where 800 acres of land will be equipped with modern technology, self-driving cars, smart street lights, public Wi-Fi, and a uh, 50 million commitment from Sidewalk Labs to install and test the company's smart city technology. Now, um, Alphabet Sidewalks Labs is also aimed to transform an additional 16 cities into tech-friendly laboratories. Gates plans to populate the city in Arizona with around 3,800 acres of offices, stores and homes, and keeping 470 acres for public schools. The city will transform a raw blank state into a purpose-built city. While this plan's ambitious, pretty ambitious, it's not really new. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has plans to build a new $500 billion metropolis spanning three countries. And India plans to build a hundred smart cities. But with the United Nations predicting that 2.5 billion people will migrate into cities by 2050, they all seem to have the same goals in mind. Bring a new progressive focus into city living by improving infrastructure for the people who want to live there. I reckon that's all really cool. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter. I must admit, you can't always read it in 30 seconds. Sometimes it's a bit shorter. Sometimes it's maybe a couple of minutes, but it's well worth reading. We've now got about 1.7 million daily subscribers and 30 seconds or 60 seconds every day isn't much time to um, keep up with advances in medicine and new apps and new technology and subjects like Hyperloop, Autonomous Cars and Blockchain. It's free and its information is invaluable. It's gratifying to see the tremendous wish. We get a fantastic response, but I always get a huge response from um, newsletters that I don't think are worthy of it and ones that I think are really um, worthy of it. Maybe we get a trickle. I'm also grateful for the number of companies like um, Shooter Pharmaceuticals in, in England and in a hundred other countries as well, who um, send the new newsletter, if it's on something that's of interest to the company, they send it around to all their senior staff as an educational tool. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Now, if you don't get my newsletter, go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enrol. Now, Uber's obtained formal services contract from the US National Aeronautical and Space Administration which you may well know as NASA, which covers low-altitude airspace rather than outer space. Uber will begin testing four passenger 200 miles an hour, that's 322 kilometres per hour, flying taxi services across Los Angeles in 2020. That's only two years away. So flying taxi services across LA in two years Boy, it's all happening a lot sooner than we think. 
And when you, if you ask somebody in the street, when do you think we'll have flying taxis, they all say, oh, it's at least a generation away. Well, it ain't. It's two years. Now, I'm a great supporter of cryptocurrencies and I'm involved in cryptocurrency myself and also in um, ICOs. And the evidence shows that millennials are heavily invested in investing in cryptocurrencies on the basis that that's the way to get rich quick. What's driving people to suddenly invest in highly speculative assets in the cryptocurrency space, mainly Bitcoin? I mean, you know, whether it's I get I look at it, I think it's highly speculative, but at the same time I think that um, it's got a really good shot of being massively successful. Now having seen the once in a lifetime returns with Bitcoin over the last couple of years. I mean, everybody knows somebody who's turned a hundred dollar investment a year ago to a thousand dollars today, or ten thousand into a hundred thousand, and they want to be part of it before it peaks. And the one big thing about the cryptocurrency that fuels this growth is that there will only ever be a set amount of it. I think it's twenty-five million bitcoins. That's it. And as more people decide to invest, that limited supply gets more rare and it consequently goes up in value. There are people predicting that Bitcoin will go to $100,000. I mean, at the moment, it's about seven, I think. Now, many of these investors began prudently. They began buying a couple of Bitcoins, but after a few months of exceptional returns, they've gone all in, putting high percentages of their network into net worth into Bitcoin, all trying to maximise the returns in the short term. Many of them, and this is a bit that worries me a bit, many of them have taken out loans without concern for the possible risks involved. For example, what will happen if the stock market crashes and people get nervous? However, there are a number of analysts that predict that in this scenario, cryptocurrencies will become more valuable. However, I guess the reality is that Nobody knows. And if you're one of those people who put in $1,000 seven years ago and you're now worth $70 million on Bitcoin, I guess you'd say it was a pretty good punt. Now, you know, I deal with traditional financial advisors and I went down to Chase and I spoke to them and they said, you know, put 10% or so of your income into the bank-selected securities and, you know, we can probably make you 6% a year. Six percent? Give me a break. This falls on deaf ears to millennials because they're watching entrepreneur peers that they went to college with become instant millionaires or peers making a thousand percent on their cryptocurrency in just a year or two. Interestingly, the people splurging on cryptocurrencies are educated. They're in their mid to late 20s. They have student debt burdens and they have incomes ranging from little savings to living comfortably with an entry-level luxury car. They've been exposed to this outside success on a regular basis. So investing in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies looks like a way to have this kind of outcome, i.e. become rich, without committing yourself to work at a particular company for five years or ten years. 
So instead of the traditional method of investing slowly and steadily, they'll argue that these are different times. They'd rather gamble for the chance to get wealthy relatively quickly. Now, does this represent a fundamental shift in the kinds of things people invest in and the time horizons they consider? Or could it be a bubble that sets a portion of the millennial generation even further behind on their long-term goals? That is a bloody good question. Actually, I'm betting on the former. Screw the 2 to 6% return on investment. 2%. I mean, 6%. I went down to um, the Chase Bank and I told them that I had X number of dollars to invest and they promised me a 6% return. I walked out, kept my money. Now I've multiplied it many times over. So I ain't going there. Now I've just converted from Uber to Lyft for a number of reasons which I won't go into, but starting in December, Lyft will begin operating in Toronto, Canada marking the ride shares first foray internationally. Now, after growing their availability in America from 54% of the population to 95% of the population just this year, the service is on pace to take over a third of the ride hailing market, up from just 10%, only two, maybe two years ago maybe three years ago. So while Uber seems to face a new crisis every week, Lyft has moved forward without a hitch. They've been capitalising on every opportunity. They're really smart. And what impresses me about the Lyft guys is that they spend two days a week, the two, two founders spend two days a week driving their cars, picking up passengers, getting the feel of the market, when you're worth a couple of billion dollars each, I reckon that is really, really cool. And they seriously deserve to be successful, don't you reckon? Now, Lyft just received $1 billion in funding from Alphabet's Capital G Fund. And this is the uh, ride-hailing service's biggest round. And it now places them at a $11 billion valuation. $11 billion, that's not bad. Now, aside from the new cash, they've also recently landed a handful of partnerships with major automakers and tech companies, and they're doing this so they can join the fully automated vehicle push, which, as you know, everybody's into, and it's moving ahead at very rapid speed. So while they still trail Uber in terms of reach and valuation, Lyft's slow and steady policy has worked out very well for them to date, and I have absolutely no doubt their foray into Canada, Canada will be equally successful. I must admit, since we've switched over, um, we have really enjoyed our experience with Lyft, and I would strongly recommend anybody who's tired of Uber's constant problems to give Lyft a shot. They're really good. Now, my guest today is a fascinating guy. He's the most successful art forger in history. He forged over 1,000 paintings by various artists and 1,300 sculptures by the Swiss, 
Swiss sculptor Alberto Giacometti. Despite the fact that Giacometti produced no more than 500 unique pieces. <laughs> I reckon that's a pretty good effort. Robert Dryson was eventually captured. He was convicted and sentenced to prison. He is a really interesting guy. What I find interesting is he believes that he's a victim because despite the fact that he was the forger, there was a middleman who sold the um, his works to people like um, Christie's and <laughs> Sotheby's, people like that. And the middleman made not all the money, but much more money than Robert did. So Robert felt that He's a bit of a victim. It's a very interesting logic. We found him running a small cafe in Thailand. And he's a really good guy, really interesting perspective on forgery. And he, incidentally, he's promised to send me a Picasso. <laughs> Hope it arrives soon. I'll be back with Robert after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Coming to you from Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the last six years or so, we've given you insights into the lives of over 320 of the world's most interesting people. We've spoken about what they do, what makes them tick, how they became known, what pitfalls they encountered along the way and how they overcame them. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business and we need to receive advice and assistance from those people that have achieved success before us. So the aim of this segment is to give you information and to assist you to become successful. Now, Robert Dreesen is both an entrepreneur in a field that very few succeed at, and he's also successful having made many millions of dollars. 
He's also able to live comfortably in the tropics by the water, although that have not may not have always been entirely by choice. My guest today is Dutch artist Robert Driesen. Now, Robert's regarded as the most successful art forger and one that the European authorities sought to find and arrest. But while Robert's German accomplices sat in prison, he was free until he was finally arrested and convicted. The police sought him in Europe for art crimes. Robert Driesen forged some thousand paintings by various artists and 1,300 sculptures by the Swiss sculptor Alberto Giacometti, despite the fact that Giacometti produced no more than 500 unique pieces. So the, the artist only produced 500 pieces, but Robert produced 1,300. Now, at one stage, two of his accomplices were in prison in Germany, and Robert was the only member of the gang still at large. He was eventually captured, convicted and sentenced to prison. Now, Robert spent more than 30 years forging art, including paintings and sculptures, and he's lived pretty well on the proceeds. We found him and he's running a small cafe in Thailand and uh, Roman Abramovich, who's the owner of Chelsea Football Club. Luxury yacht is anchored nearby, so he's living in a pretty nice part of the world. Robert, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and you're being heard all around the world. Thank you very much for having me. You've certainly had a hell of an interesting life, haven't you? Well, some people say yes. Uh, I would agree with them, but uh, on the other hand, it was uh, stressful, forging sculptures, trying to get out of the hands of the Justice Department, which finally they won, and they put me to jail for forging the sculptures by Giacometti. So, what is it that drives a forger, a forger, whether it be art or sculpture or whatever it is, is it is it the money? Is it the thrill of the chase? Is it outsmarting the so-called art experts or the authorities? Or is it something else or a combination of all of those things? Well, let's say it's a combination of all, but uh, outsmarting the, the experts who think they know it all makes me, well, yeah, thrills. If you make something, people can't say this is made by the original artist or made by somebody who hasn't got a clue, actually but just doing it. And, yeah, that's actually my goal. It's not so much the money, because that everybody says I made four tunes. I did it. I did, I did quite well, I must admit. But, uh, no, uh, the, 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 my main goal was, yeah, forging is, yeah, my passion. Art is my passion. And I want to do forges and make it actually better than the... Uh, actual artist did. So how do you determine what piece of art or what type of artist you're going to forge? Do you, is that um, related to 
your own style or can you forge any style? I can forge any style and people come to me just because of that. And they say, Robert, can you make me this or that? And that's what happened with Giacometti's as well. People came to me and wanted a Giacometti. I said, well, the biggest one Giacometti made was not even three meters. I'll make you a bigger one, a nicer one, which I did. And successfully sold it. So, and that's but most of the art that um, you forged, whether uh, uh, speaking of art being either paintings or sculpture, um, was was most of that made to order? I mean, did somebody come to you and say, yes. "Look, I've got a great private yes. collection, and I want to"? So, people, how does so, so how does so? I'm an art collector, and I'm. Got, got some pieces together. How do I find a forger? I mean, you can't look you up in the phone book. How do I find a forger? Well, it's mouth to mouth. People know other people and they say, well, if you want this or that, then uh, call Robert. And that's his number. <laughs> that's, how it's, that, that's how it went in my case. That's, uh, but I've I, I worked for many, many people. And, uh, sure. It's not only Giacometti's. On a, on, a, on a rainy Sunday when it's nothing to do, I'd, I'd take a book by any famous artist. And at one stage, I made a hundred Emil Nolder, one of the most nicest German artists, uh, and uh, made a hundred watercolors on, on, on a rainy weekend. <laughs> so, okay, another question: If if people all around the world can find you and commission you to forge a painting or a piece of sculpture, why couldn't the authorities find you? I haven't got a clue, actually. Everybody knew I was in Thailand. Everybody knew I was in Thailand, and nobody came to get me. So were you sort of looking over your shoulder the whole time, every morning waking up to... Ugh. Not really. That would be too. That would have been too stressful. But uh, yes, of course. You, 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 in the back of your head, you always know somebody's coming out and get you. But then Thailand's pretty safe because they don't uh, extradite uh, for like why well, I wouldn't say petty crime. But uh, in my case, I think uh, forging art is not really, really. Uh, uh, criminal fact and uh, that's why they left me alone for that long <laughs> so I had to go to Holland myself to, to get arrested yeah why did you do that well uh, I got a son there I've got an ex-wife there and you sometimes miss things in Holland or wherever and then yes I just went so you went You went. I, I thought it was I thought it was too long ago to, to, to well so I thought it the other two were already convicted and did their time and I thought well I'm safe now but I was wrong you know they have they have things at the airport when you go through that says who you are and were you travelling under your own name or would you have a yes 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 yes, yes. so you weren't trying to hide yeah you were actually asking no (laughs) yes actually I actually did and then this huge sentence came and uh, I thought well if they would arrest me they'd uh, say don't do this again man but uh, I was wrong (laughs) didn't work that way okay so you began when you when you were young you began painting your own art 
And um, yes. when they did didn't you sell? <laughs> so, yeah, when did you go from painting your own um, product and uh, trying to develop your way as an artist? Uh, when did you turn to copying famous artists to forging other people's art? There was a German art auctioneer that came and said, I need some Dutch or German oil paintings, like uh, in, in, in the Romantic style, the 1850s, uh, summer scenes, winter scenes. Could you do that? I said, yes, well, of course. And uh, he said, oh, please, I'll give you 25 guilders for uh, any painting you make. So that's what I did. I was 19 years old at that, at that time. So that's when I first... Uh, imitated uh, other artists, actually. So, if you're, um, I don't know much about um, the composition of art, but if you're if you're forging something that's 150 years old or whatever, you have to take into account the um, the the canvas on which you you're painting it and the sort of inks you use. And how do you how do you if you want to do it perfect? Yeah, if you want to do it perfect. Yes. Well, you, you you buy an old old old, uh, old old canvases and remove the paint that's on there and uh, start painting anew. So where do you get the where do you get the paint that uh, I would imagine that like everything there's been big advantages in paint over the last few hundred years or whatever. How do you how do you yeah. re- replicate the paint that was or the oil or whatever it was that was used? back in those days? Well, many of the old paint uh, is still the same, but there are some particular white colors and uh, that weren't available, that, 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 that were different at the, at, in those times, but you can make, you can easily make them yourself. That's not so problem. Right, so it, it's not only just being a great artist, it's being smart enough to determine the materials you've got to use so that you ideally don't get caught yes and that's the same with uh, with, with sculptures of course and, and sculptures is even more difficult to see because it's uh, it's you know bronze is if you have a bronze from today or bronze from 10,000 years ago it's, it's still it's still bronze right and it's hard to find out uh, what, what 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 age it has yeah that makes it easier for you doesn't it Yes, and as long as you do the patina, uh, the patina on it, which is uh, which is also an ancient art, uh, and if you do that right with this, with several assets, then uh, it's it's very hard to discover. So, where did you learn to paint? Was that just a natural talent, or did you? Yes, I think so. Yes, everybody. When I was young, everybody said, "Oh, wow, you can you can really you can make really nice things." And yeah, well, and then I went to art school for a year. Which, which was pretty boring. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and that just started from there, actually. So what about um, sculptor? Is that, a, is that a, an, another art that you just picked up? Or did you have some... Yeah. I, 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 I once, I once I bought uh, a pack of clay and uh, and I saw a nice torso of uh, Aristide Mayol, a French uh, artist, and I thought, well, let's see if I can make that. And yeah, well, uh, half an hour later, it was there. <laughs> now, you're, so. 
you've just released a book, which I assume is self-published, yes. is it? It's published. Uh, it was published last last week. Yes, now, last week. My my language abilities are not great, but is it called uh, Lieberfrau L? Is that what it? Yes, it's uh, it's in English. It's it, it would have been uh, said, uh, "Dear Mrs. L." Yeah, I looked. I actually looked it up on Google, and it says in English it means Lady L. And I was wondering whether that Lady L stood for Lady Luck. No, 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 no. No, it's 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 it's. Uh, it was a woman that once asked me, do you have any regret or do you feel sorry or do you, would you, would you have done it different? And that's, the, that's why the title is Liebe for L, because she asked that, I wrote the book. So my book is actually, I'm talking to her and explained what I did and did not and why I don't have regret of most things of course there are always regrets and that's what I explain in the book yeah um, I find a couple of things interesting and I, um, um, I have trouble sort of recon reconciling it so I just want to run through in the book you claim that you're a victim um, because the auction houses made tens of millions of dollars compared with what you made <laughs> but yes. you, how can you be a victim when you knew you were forging, you knew you were fooling museums and galleries and major auction houses? Um, yes, but there's a, there's a slight difference. If you sell a work of art for, let's say, $1,000, yeah. which is worth $10 million, yeah. I don't really think that's fraudulent. Oh. What people do with it, with what people do with it, bring it to auction houses and sell it for a lot of money. Yes, well, <laughs> I've done my job. I've got my money. Okay, but at the same Sorry? time, you knew when you forged something and you supplied yes. it to an auction house or whatever, you knew what they were going to do with it, and you, you know, you yes. obviously knew that they were selling it for whatever, <laughs> whatever millions of dollars they could flog it for. Um, Surely, at, at, at very least, you're guilty, aren't you, of being a forger? But certainly, wouldn't be a victim in my my view. I, I, I don't say I'm a victim, but I'm not that. Uh, you're not a real bad as guy. People, as, 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 no, as people <laughs> say, I am. Okay. I but think I think many people would would should should take their responsibility if they buy something like a Ferrari you can't buy a Ferrari for a thousand dollars can you one wouldn't think so um, but no. if let, let's look at um, Giacometti's you know Giacometti in his life apparently produced about 500 pieces of work and you produced about 1300 pieces of his work um, and you were brazen enough to make your own models and then cast them and stamp them with the stamps of the foundries that Giacometti had used. Now, that's surely that's an obvious attempt to deceive, isn't it? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. 
Giacometti is an artist, and I make art. Okay. That's that's the difference, I think. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, you also on your on your website, you more or less brag about being one of the world's most famous forgers. Um, that's what they call me. I never yeah. said that myself, but. Uh, but you believe it, don't you? I'm, I'm, I'm one of the well, most well, most known, well, most well known uh, forgers. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are much better ones, yeah, but I'm I, not too bad. <laughs> I think deep down you probably think, you know, I'm really fucking good at this. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> okay, you talk in the book about the sentence the pre-justice system and life behind bars. Before we discuss the art world in general, would you like to sort of elaborate on a couple of those points, the sentence, the pre-justice system and life behind bars? Um, because for most of the, the listeners, they wouldn't be familiar with the uh, German system. Well, I, I call it pre-justice because before, uh, every, everything was already settled. Everybody was going to know. Everybody knew I was I was I was I was, I was guilty, and they gave me. Uh, but there was one thing that they, they said it was a gang, and for a gang you need more than one, more than two, three people. The only thing, the only one um, I dealt with was this man who got seven and a half year sentence, and uh, that was that was the only one uh, I dealt with, and and and, and they would. It was a gang, but it wasn't, and that was most of the sentence. Well, would, what about the people that the your immediate contact was commissioned by? Presumably, he was sitting there, and he had these art gallery or art auctions who would come to him and say, "Can you get me whatever?" And uh, he'd say, "Okay, I'll get on to Robert, and you know, give me a couple of weeks, and you'll have." You. You'll have your Picasso or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Surely that that makes it much bigger than just two of you, doesn't it? Wouldn't that qualify as a um, gang? Well, well, it, it depends on how you see it. I, I think I, I dealt with just one man. What this man with with, with whom he dealt—that's uh, beyond my 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 thing. Okay. Um, for somebody who's artistic and creative, what was life like behind bars? Did you? I guess they didn't give you a paintbrush and a canvas. <laughs> well, uh, actually, I made fifty more Giacometti drawings in jail. So, but uh, I had to, I had to buy my own uh, uh, pencils and things. Yes, so. I didn't get it from there. <laughs> so you actually sat in jail, no. um, creating more forgeries that you could <laughs> you could um, cast when you got out. No, I just made painting. I just made uh, drawings. Uh, this is a shame, actually, because uh, I, I like sculpting more. But uh, they didn't. They wouldn't give me any of these materials. <laughs> I can't say that I really. But I didn't blame them. 
I, I didn't put in uh, Jeffrey Matthews' name, though. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, in your book, you say that it's not the art that sells, but the story. What do you mean by the yes. story? Well, if you ever been to an art gallery, and uh, of course there's nice things there, but uh, there's always somebody talking about it as if it was the most beautiful, beautiful thing in the world. And that's why I say the more beautiful the story, the higher the price. It's the way of selling it, not the piece of art uh, directly. I, I explain in my book that there's a, you can make an artist. You can, you can, you can, you can buy his stuff for a couple of bob and uh, put it in an art gallery, uh, put red stickers on it and do that for a couple of, couple of years and make that artist great, big, expensive. And, and, and then somebody will write about it. And then that's what ha- that's like what, what happened with Tiffany Lance for Barbara Streisand, Teddy Bears, Michael Jackson. That's, you, you could, you, it depends on who buys it that makes the prices. So are you saying that art isn't judged on the quality of the art? Well, that's very subjective anyway, isn't it? Um, yes, but indeed. It's... Um, it's judged on how much exposure and and promotion from the right people determines whether or not that art becomes. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an absolute believer in that. Yes. You know, it's interesting because three or four days ago, when I was in Spain, I went to the Picasso Museum, and you know, there's a hell of a lot of good stuff there, but there's a hell of a lot of stuff that I reckon I could have painted. Um, well, <laughs> probably not, but you know what I mean. Um, so, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So what, what, Picasso led a fairly, you know, he wasn't that well you, connected you, initially, so he didn't have the connections to go out and promote in, in the real early days. In fact, I think the stuff that he did when he was 17, 18, 19 was the best work he did. But um, Absolutely. So how does somebody who's unknown become that famous if it's all well, just a matter of for Picasso, manipulation? Even, for Picasso... Yes, for Picasso was even because he was a he, he worked hard. He made an awful lot of work. Yeah, true. And that's what, uh, of course, uh, these gallerist people want because the more the merrier. And um, that's what I say at the beginning. They'll uh, they'll buy his stuff because he needs money, of course, and uh, put it on the gallery, uh, get in the press. Uh, put red stickers and do that for several times and then at a certain point it'll sell itself. And with Picasso, because he made so much, so many things, and uh, that, that that was easy, actually. What Did you actually think at the time, well, um, I'm pretty good at this and, and I'm creating forgeries that are selling, that um, you would paint your own... Uh, works or sculpt your own works alongside the stuff that you were selling? Um, I didn't have time for that. <laughs> you were too busy forging stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, how ma- okay, that, 
that's interesting. If you, if you, how long were you forging? I mean, how many years were you creating forgeries? Probably forty, probably forty years, something. So, and you could, you would have churned out several thousand pieces in that time, right? Yes. So, how many people are out there churning out several thousands of pieces of forged art, and? Putting that art on the market is there a is there a whole bunch of you? Is there a dozen? Is there a hundred? Is there a thousand? How many people are out there forging art? You're coming closer. You're coming closer, but the last number. So you think there's thousands of forgers out there putting art on the market that isn't genuine? Yes, but that happened for thousands of years already, of course. But uh, the the last hundreds. Yes, it's uh, it's become more and more and more, of course. So, how do you how does one detect whether a piece of art is genuine or just some clever bastard like you has gone and painted it? How do you how do you how does the collector tell? <laughs> it's, it's 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 very 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 difficult, and I always say to people, if you like a work of art, and if they ask, uh, I don't I don't really. Matter. It doesn't really matter what price. If you're if you're happy with the price they ask, put it on your wall. But don't instantly look at the name that's uh, uh, under it. But uh, do you like it? Don't you? And that's that's what the prices are based on. I think. And people do so difficult about art. And it's a shame, really. The majority of people. Art should be for everybody. Yeah, but the majority of people who buy name art do it for as a collector and for that yeah for um, investment reasons. So how do they tell whether something is genuine or not? And I guess (laughs) does it matter? Well, provenance, of course, provenance. uh, If you how far can you back? How how far can you go back for with provenance uh, for provenance? And uh, that's always a, a thing you should uh, keep in mind. How okay. Well, you were supplying forgeries to auction houses and they were selling them sometimes for huge amounts of money. How did they cover the provenance situation? Or did they just um, find people they, they, who didn't care? They, they, didn't, they, didn't really, they didn't really care. So you've just they got to find really that. If you... Well, if you if, if you go, if you go with Picasso or with Giacometti or uh, Andy Warhol or whatever, these huge, these big, big, big names, of course, they, 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 they would not uh, sell it without a provenance. But, but you were, you were everything, everything minor than that. Uh, they don't really care. But you were selling they heaps of Giacometti's, weren't you? Yes, but I, I never sold them at auctions. I no, sold them to, to this one to this one man, and then he he that went on and sold. No, he didn't. He didn't. He, he didn't. He didn't sell it to auctions, as far as I know. Yeah. Uh, he didn't sell it at auctions also. Okay, so you're saying that people like Sotheby's and Christie's don't bother to check provenance, but they're only interested in selling the art. So yes, do they work together? Do they work together? Or are they totally independent, or have they got a sort of a wink, wink, nod, n- nod, nod understanding that um, you know they'll well, ever major, 
every major city in the world, as a Sotheby's and the Christie's, I, I, I think that they uh, work together a bit. But sometimes not, but there was, because there was two authentic Renoirs a couple of years uh, back, uh, one in London and one in, uh, in New York. Right. Suddenly came on the market. Because if they, um, if they sell fakes and, and it becomes known, then it screws up their reputation, doesn't it? Happened many times before already, yes. And they just get by it. For myself, I, I know that at least 200 sculptures I made were sold there. <laughs> Jeez. Um, the guy that was your point man who was um, buying the sculptures and things off you, what happened to him? He went to jail for seven years? Uh, he, he was in jail half, half time, same as me. And he went to Portugal. Okay, is he still in the art after, business? After a sentence. I haven't got a clue. I, 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 I didn't I didn't talk to him ever since. Okay. You're, you're a fascinating guy with a fantastic story to tell. Um, what do you, you do now? You're still producing art? Uh, well, I just finished my book, so uh, I'm, I'm still looking what to do now. Uh, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm going to write a new book, but... Uh, That'll take uh, that'll take me more time because uh, I'm not in a hurry anymore. I want to do this. Uh, I want to do this book Eva Frau L pretty quick, and I succeeded. And now I'm uh, writing another one. And by if people come to me and say, "Can you make me this or that?" Um, of course, I'm open to that. So, and you're producing work under your own name now that I I see. Yes, sir. Is that? Do they all look like um, traditional artists, or are they your own flavour? Oh, if people can do a mixture between, if you want, uh, I just made um, a, a Banksy. Uh, I sprayed a Banksy and uh, a Keith Herring, and I put under it uh, Banksy meets Herring. So <laughs> that's what I do as well. So you you distinguish your art now using your own name, yes, rather than whoever you are forging. So, yeah, that's too much trouble. The fact that you're and there's too many people know where the hell you are now since they caught you once. So, where do, does your name have a value now? I mean, if if somebody sees a piece of work by Robert Dresson, um, has that got an intrinsic value because you are famous and you are who you are? I, 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 did, I didn't increase the prices yet. I might in, <laughs> at one stage maybe, but uh, it's getting too busy. But no, I still enjoy it very, very much. And I do my best. And I, I was what I did before. Also, I, I, I judge the piece on my work, on the hours I spend, and that's how I made my price always. Okay. So, what's next for Robert Dresson? Write my new book about. Yeah. I went to England, South of England, seven years every weekend to the auction houses, and there's some very funny and nice stories about that. And. Uh, alongside, I do some artwork. 
I hope you've got a good lawyer because it seems to me that you put out a book of your stories, um, the um, Sotheby's and Christie's and people like that are going to sue the hell out of you. Oh, well, the, the, the truth never harms, does it? <laughs> yeah, truth's no defence though, is it? <laughs> well, I can prove it all. So, uh, if they want to sue me, come on, get me. Okay. So, um, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I've really enjoyed it. And a very nice time. Uh, you can see Robert's work by going to Dress and Art. Now, I'll spell that for you. It's D R I E S S E N. ART.com. That's Dries. I would say Dreesen Art, but it's DressenArt.com. And you can see some of the works that he has for sale. You can read some fascinating information. It's um, It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Robert. And I'll be back. Thank you very much. With more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show, and you're on Voice America Business Channel. The Bob Pritchard Radio Show is the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, and this week we're broadcasting from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in California, in Los Angeles, California, where entertainment meets technology. I'm not a big social media person because um, I'm concerned about the um, uh, risk of security of information and uh, and I like to keep, you know, what I'm doing and whether I'm home or whether I'm out of town pretty private. And But I saw a really interesting report this week that was asking if social media is harmful. Well... An increase in suicide rates amongst US teens has occurred at the same time the social media use surged and a new analysis suggests that there may be a link between social media use and suicide for teens. Suicide for teens rose between 2010 and 2015 after they had been declining for nearly 20 years. And this is according to data from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why the rates went up considerably isn't known. But uh, a major study suggests that one factor could be rising social media use. Recent teen suicides have been blamed on cyberbullying and social media posts depicting perfect lives may be taking a toll on teens' mental health. The study's authors looked at CDC suicide reports 
from 2009 to 2015, and the results of two surveys that were given to US high school students to measure attitudes, behaviours and interests. About half a million teens aged 13 to 18 were involved in the study. That's half a million. That's a pretty good sample. They were asked about the use of electronic devices, social media, print media, television, and time spent with friends. Questions about mood, including frequency of feeling hopeless and considering or attempting suicide. Data highlighted in the study included teens' use of electronic devices, including smartphones, for at least five hours daily, more than doubled from 8% of teens to 19% of teens in 2015. And these teens that used electronic devices more often were 70% more likely to have suicidal thoughts or actions than those who reported less than an hour of use. In 2015, 36% of all teens reported feeling desperately sad or hopeless or thinking about planning or attempting suicide, up from 32% just six years earlier. And for girls, the rates were higher, 45% in 2015. In 2009, 58% of 12th grade girls used social media every day or nearly every day. By 2015, 87% of 12th grade girls used social media every day and they were 14% more likely to be depressed than those who use social media less frequently. So the study implies a connection between teen suicides, depression and social media. It certainly shows the need for more research on this new technology. It's not, you know, I know there are sceptics who think social media is being unfairly criticised and they compare it with so-called vices of past generations and you know when dime store books came out when comics books came out when television came out when rock and roll first started people were saying this is the end of the world this is going to ruin teenagers well with its immediacy it's anonymity and potential for bullying social media has got a unique potential for causing real harm and I don't think parents really get that. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. It's better to aim for the stars and miss than to aim for the gutter and succeed. And if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing that you can really be. Now, I hope you have a sensational week. And join me again next Tuesday when I'll again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.